Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. At the end of the last episode, I promised you that during the next episode, I would endeavor to provide at least some objective criticisms of Gordon Arnold's testimony. As you know, I don't usually do that, and frankly, up to this point, most of it has been sworn testimony by mostly credible witnesses. Whatever inconsistencies there are, it's mostly innocent and honest differences in human perception. No real need for me to intervene. But one of our avid listeners, Chris from Wales, the same Chris that helped us identify the issues with Mary Woodford's on-camera statements, you remember them the ones about the BBC and the men who killed Kennedy? Well, Chris provided more commentary to me this past week after these last couple of episodes with Beverly Oliver. Frankly, the time I spent at the beginning of episode 41 talking about our need to objectively evaluate evidence and in some cases throw out some of the evidence if we found it not to be credible, well, that is a reiteration of something I truly believe to be important. That iteration was inspired by Chris's comments to me. So thank you, Chris. And as a side note, I also cringe a bit when I talk about throwing out evidence that is not credible, because that is just the language that the Warren Commission used when good evidence was ignored because it did not fit the narrative. It underscores in this world that evil hides behind innocent language and the like. It really does hide in the most obvious of spots. So be careful. Like a snake in the woods, you can pass by peacefully, sometimes right next to it, never seeing it, never being frightened by it. But if you happen to step on it, well, all bets are off on what happens next. Perhaps it was timely and darned if it didn't lead to a real obligation on my part to say something more about Gordon Arnold. I really haven't had a good feeling about this witness from the beginning. It's not that I dislike him. I just have a real pause when it comes to trusting at all what he is saying. As you all know, I turned 60 years old this year and have met, worked with, been around an awful lot of people in that time. I was in executive roles in business during a good portion of my adult life. And you get a good sense of when folks are telling the truth, when they are exaggerating, and unfortunately, on occasion, when they are telling a Texas-sized lie. Not always, of course. I've been wrong plenty of times, but it's a sense you develop. It's a survival sense in business because in large executive roles, you rely on the team. And if there is a weak link, well, it can do real damage. So you always have to continuously assess and reassess regarding whether someone is telling it to you straight. There really is little room for hyperbole, although there is much of it in business. And in most cases, whether it's business or your personal life, there is a downright intolerance for Texas-sized lies. Oh, and then there is this other thing, another sense of things. The longer you live, the more often you come across somebody that seems to match exactly someone else from the past. With this new person striking you as having surprisingly similar traits or qualities, a sort of déjà vu, sometimes you can put your finger on it, and sometimes it's just a gut feeling. I had that with Gordon Arnold. 
my brain tells me that he is like someone I have met and dealt with before. Someone who was an exaggerator, but probably not a liar of sorts. He didn't seek the limelight, but he liked to be in it once he was there. A relatively simple soul, I think. It may have been more than one actor from the past that has been recalled from the recesses of my own mind to give me these feelings and this gut sense. What I am using to make this assessment of Arnold, maybe it was a composite of many, but but all that really doesn't matter. It, it's just what's in my mind and how I have viewed this man's statements. All of that has led me to yet another obligatory wander, and so now I will explain. There is no better academic course to take if you want to debunk assassination research than to sit down and read some of the material written by or just listen to Professor John McAdams. For the last 30 or 40 years or so, he has been heavily involved in the subject of the JFK assassination and eventually becoming the gold standard in taking a contrary view to anything conspiracy-oriented in the JFK matter. John Charles McAdams died this year, just a few months ago. He was 75. Unlike another latecomer to the party, I am referring to prosecuting attorney Vincent Bugliosi, McAdams was more apt to do the hard work around the facts and stick to them as part of his argument. I say that about Bugliosi even though he gets the prize for publishing the book with the most number of pages. And in that vein, all I will say about Bugliosi is that quantity doesn't predict quality, and that is certainly true when reading his book. The tome he published on the assassination, well, it will cause you to change the strength of your prescription on your next set of readers. I say that McAdams would stick to the facts, even if, at times, he would practice exactly what I asked you to be guarded against yourself in the last episode. That property of closure where facts begin to bend and conform to circumstances which then fit your predetermined conclusions or narrative. So my point there is that I do not agree with much that McAdams said, and I think he dismissed an awful lot of coincidences in the JFK case that make it hard for anyone to rationally believe that they were all just that. But then again, no one really knows. Aside from all of that, he was just plain smart, and having him as a well-respected academic in the fold on the JFK matter, regardless of whether he was a critic or not of a particular aspect of the case, was incredibly helpful for researchers over the years. Helpful in a number of ways. The websites that he maintains or maintained, much to the credit of his successors, they are still up and running. Those websites were constructed and compiled in logical ways and remain principal gateways that are still used today by researchers to access a mound of witness testimony and other elements of evidence and research. Also logically organized electronically on the internet, and it's just easier to use his site than many others. Like Mary Farrell and the Mary Farrell Foundation, his presence in that way has been a genuine help to the research community. I've used the site extensively as part of researching for this podcast. He's also injected, promoted, and inspired matter-of-fact contrary dialogue around conspiracy theories based on the facts of the case as they are documented. Not always strong arguments, but certainly ones based on solid articulation of existing testimony and facts and circumstances. The wander that I guess I've already started on here 
and uh, we'll finish now, is, as you might have already guessed, it's about McAdams himself. Given that he passed this year and that I am about to draw heavily from him when I pivot to a set of comments about Arnold. It's a wander where I get a chance to take a moment and pay a small tribute to this man, a man who is a celebrity of sorts in this small world of JFK assassination research. Well, it seems appropriate, and particularly because his personal story involves one of the highest profile cases related to academic freedom that the United States academia has experienced in the last 50 years. And no, it had nothing to do with his involvement in the review of the JFK case. In fact, for many years, he taught a college course on the assassination, a course that was popular with the students, as you might expect. So let me take the next 15 minutes or so and complete the wander on McAdams. After that, we'll ride his coattails and give you the anti-conspiracy view of the Gordon Arnold story. So here is the rest of the wander. John Charles McAdams was born in 1945 at the end of World War II, and he was an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. McAdams taught courses on American politics and public policy, voter behavior, and, as I just mentioned, the John F. Kennedy assassination. He had what you might label, at the very least, as a curiously interesting melting pot of first-rate academic experiences. He grew up in the South, attending school first in Kennedy, Alabama, then went on to study at the University of Alabama, right in those heyday years of Bear Bryant as their football coach. And this caught my attention about him because uh, he attended when Joe Namath was there, if you want a famous or infamous time reference. But eventually, McAdams made his way to Harvard for graduate school and then to Columbia Teachers College. Later, he would make his way to Marquette University as a professor. It was here during this time that he became the noted JFK researcher that supported the Warren Commission findings. In later years, he would team up with Max Holland, another Warren Commission advocate, to become what I'll call the bookends, so to speak, in the research community on the side opposing conspiracy. After a very long, successful, and illustrious career there, and finally as a tenured professor, on December 12, 2014, McAdams was placed on indefinite academic leave from Marquette, and he was suspended from all teaching and faculty duties. If that wasn't enough, he was also banned from campus. For various reasons, and because he was tenured, he was able to retain for at least a while his pay and his benefits after being placed on indefinite leave. These events would get much publicity in the world of academics, and perhaps especially because he was a conservative speaking out, a conservative that is rare in academia these days, in sharp contrast to the majority of professors in academia who are liberals when it comes to their social and academic beliefs. And for Adams, this marked the start of a personal four-year odyssey that he went on, a crusade of sorts, one that finally culminated in an important decision by the Wisconsin Supreme Court that would set precedent and affect the rights of men and women in academia for a long time to come. He did this in his later years. He did it near the end of his life. He did it to retrieve his own dignity and his right to speak out, and frankly, to resist the requirement to be nice about it. And by the way, on that note, he really wasn't nice about it. 
But as unpleasant as that part of the story is, it's secondary in some sense to the rest of the story. Photos of him taken before all of this happened, and then photos taken of him toward the end. Well, like most men and women who become engaged in these sort of epic personal battles, it clearly took its toll. I don't know this, just guessing, but I imagine it shortened his life. In the end, he filed a case against the university, and it went all the way to the Wisconsin Supreme Court, and he won. And he was reinstated at the university. And after a four-year odyssey, it was also after the pseudo-court proceedings he himself held on his own and on his own behalf in the court of public opinion using social media. He did this as he awaited the outcome of the Wisconsin court system. And after the real court victory, he made his way back to campus. Well, at the very least, his online diatribes that weren't so nice including a campaign against Marquette's administration, certainly must have made the return to campus more than just a little awkward. Near the end, in those last two years, I wonder, but I feel fairly certain, that despite the price he paid, he probably wouldn't have done it any other way. That was the way he was. And that was perhaps best demonstrated publicly over a long period when he would debate vociferously in public and online at his blog, with all the JFK conspiracy theorists lined up on the other side. Well, what exactly was the controversy that caused him the heartburn? I'll discuss it briefly in a moment and try not to lean one way or the other about the topic itself, but suffice it to say that I am bringing it up here because it embodies some of the important concepts surrounding our liberties that we are exercising in this podcast, and it also brings up the basic topic of decency when men and women get into conflicts that involve matters with emotional underpinnings to them. How men and women allow for honest debate on both sides of an issue, regardless of who plays the minority role in the conversation. And we should all remember that regardless of whether you are the minority in the conversation or the majority, whatever the topic, you should be given a voice. But both voices have a place in the discussion at all times. And ironically, for conservatives like McAdams, the tide is turned. For most of his life, he represented the majority. And on this one, the group he identified with represented the minority. This indefinite suspension came about after a very controversial matter occurred, one that involved a microcosm of events that, in some ways, represents the debate we are having in our society today. Okay, now to a brief discussion of the matter that McAdams engaged in. As I have said, McAdams was a known conservative, and an event on campus struck a chord with him and he took up the fight, and he did so by publicly mounting a verbal attack on a graduate student that was teaching a course and was involved in the controversy itself. It wasn't pretty, and McAdams was pretty brutal in the comments made online about this graduate student. McAdams publicly called out a graduate student and instructor by name in a post on his private blog. He said the instructor had refused to allow a student in an ethics class to talk about gay marriage in class. The topic is complicated. Really, it's not all that simple to explain all the facts and events that took place. And there is not enough time in this podcast to address any of it here. Well, 
to address it and really do it justice to both sides of the story. So I just won't. Sorry about that. But I did take the time myself to read a number of the seminal documents on the matter, including the involved letters sent to him by the university delivering the decision to terminate him. Of the many documents that are available, this is the one that sums it all up nicely without too many complicating details. Amongst all the details, there is one letter from Marquette indicating that the firing was the result of his thrice violating student privacy and deliberately publishing student names and information to target them for harassment. And because he had done so in the third instance, despite previously acknowledging that posting student names was a matter of concern. Obviously, there are more details to the story, but as I said, we are not going to go into them here. In March of 2016, Marquette released an announcement detailing the decision of University President Michael Lovell, formally implementing the unanimous recommendation to suspend McAdams. The university issued a 123-page report composed by the Faculty Hearing Committee after a four-day investigation. McAdams' suspension was extended until January 2017, without pay, but with benefits, and any return was conditioned on his writing a full letter of apology by April 4, 2016. McAdams told local news media that the requirement to write an apology was a deal killer. He said very simply, no, I'm not going to do that. The announcement triggered a barrage of hateful and threatening messages and emails directed at the graduate student and at Marquette University officials. The graduate student later transferred to another university, saying she feared for her safety. Obviously, all of this was a very unfortunate consequence of his own fight over the matter with the university. On April 4, 2016, McAdams issued a four-page letter to President Lavelle, formally rejecting his demands and calling them compelled speech. McAdams filed a lawsuit against Marquette, alleging that the suspension and pending dismissal amount to a breach of contract. In response, the university does what universities do when these things happen. They release the 123-page Faculty Hearing Committee report, and in it, they alleged a pattern of bullying and reckless behavior by McAdams, including at least three previous attempts to intimidate fellow faculty members by threatening to publish their names on his blog. McAdams kept the heat on in the judicial system, and the case eventually made its way all the way to the state's highest court. In July 2018, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ordered the university to reinstate him. Following a sabbatical, McAdams returned to the university in 2019. In less than three years after the Wisconsin Supreme Court decision, he would pass away, but not before he declared victory on this last and most momentous personal battle. In his earlier years, McAdams would attend some of the larger JFK assassination forums around the country, first anonymously, because ironically, he was certainly a minority in those venues with his lone gunman view. And then later, as a well-respected member of the dissenting community, he was welcomed to come and use his real name and occupation. 
perhaps a verbal exchange with one of his conspiracy-supporting antagonists at one of these conferences says it best about John Charles McAdams and what he thought about the JFK assassination. I'll reiterate it here. This, by the way, apparently was a woman that had long been the recipient of his wrath on the JFK message boards that both participated in, and now she had gotten the chance to meet this titan in the flesh at the conference. The exchange goes something like this. She would say to John, You know, I've been won over by a lot of what I've learned this weekend. Oswald had so many connections to this world. For the listener, I believe she was speaking to the world of the CIA and the FBI and covert operations. McAdams would ask back, What kind of connections? Well, she said, the CIA was watching him. McAdams would answer crisply and would commence with sage comments. Careful, careful, he says. I see it this way. Oswell did some things that created bureaucratic documents. He goes to Moscow and defects. So that creates some documents. The documents end up in the CIA's files. Then he redefects, and that creates some more documents. FBI interviews him. That creates some documents. He has a run-in with anti-Castro Cubans in New Orleans. That creates some documents. But he has a file. There's no doubt about it. But the buffs want people to believe the CIA had agents who were obsessed with Oswald. And that, he said, is bunkum. The young lady would go on to say, I tried him on a handful of other topics. Each time he laughed me off and he said his opinion on what had happened at Dealey Plaza had not shifted one bit. McAdams doesn't see any great stakes here. To him, it's all sport. It's a hobby, he said. Shouldn't it be fun? By the time the conference was over, his antagonist would give him a hug, despite the verbal tongue lashings she had previously received online before the in-person introduction at the conference. Now, that interaction is just a nice and perhaps historical memory for one of the army of folks still involved in seeking the truth about the JFK assassination. So now, as we turn to what McAdams had to say about Gordon Arnold, I'll just say this. Thank you, John Charles McAdams, for being your crusty self. Thank you in more ways than one. I don't have to believe you all the time to believe in you. So without further ado, let's listen to episode 42 of JFK. The Enduring Secret. Most of the material from this episode was retrieved through the John McAdams JFK website. It's a story written by David Reitz with contributions from other authors. Was Gordon Arnold really in Dealey Plaza? Does any evidence confirm his presence there? Did events occur as he described them? Was he consistent in his recollections? Well, there is good news and bad news for you as a listener today on this podcast. I spent so much time on the prologue for this episode that I'm going to have to shorten up the discussion around the details in order to keep the episode at a still unreasonable length. So this won't quite be a Cliff Notes version, but it will be shorter than we otherwise would present. In my mind, the problems with Arnold's testimony broadly fall into two main categories. 
The first category relates to inconsistencies in his statements, inconsistencies between the four official versions of his story that he himself told during four unique occasions. The second broad category relates to the photographic evidence itself of pictures taken in the moments right after the shots were fired. Pictures of the grassy knoll area, the area of the knoll where Arnold should have been standing, but is noticeably absent from all of those pictures. Only the claim by Gary Mack and Jack White advocate for the presence of Arnold that day. As you have already heard in the story of the Mary Mormon photograph, including the related story about Badgeman. If it were just one picture or two, maybe one could justify that perhaps Arnold had moved away momentarily from where the camera was pointed, and that's why they didn't capture Arnold. But there are so many pictures taken by different individuals from various vantage points in the plaza, all pointed over to the general area where Arnold was supposedly stationed at that time, so many that the photographic evidence and his absence from it just feels overwhelmingly in favor of confirming that he was not there, at least not where he said he was, in the moments right after the assassination. Okay, well, let's start with the inconsistencies in his major storytelling sessions. Arnold had four major interviews in his lifetime. The first was a story written by Earl Goltz for the Dallas Times-Herald and published on August 27, 1978. It was the same story that I read to you in a previous episode that was picked up on the wires and published in other cities the next day. It was sort of Arnold's public debut and coming out to the world, so to speak. Then, in 1982, he was again interviewed by JFK assassination researcher and author Henry Hurt. Three years later, in 1985, Jim Mars interviewed him as Mars was preparing his now-famous book, Crossfire. And then, finally, a fourth set of interviews occurred in 1988 with Nigel Turner and his team for the documentary, The Men Who Killed Kennedy. So let's take a look at some of the inconsistencies between the four different renditions of his story that he told. First, let's start with the agent behind the fence. Item number one, how did the agent identify himself, according to Arnold? In The Men Who Killed Kennedy, the man is alleged to have stated, I'm with the CIA. But in all previous accounts by Arnold, the man is identified as a Secret Service agent. In The Men Who Killed Kennedy, the man is said to have pulled out an identification card, but Arnold told Earl Goltz and Henry Hurt it had been a badge. These are small details, but they're not the kind of details that you would expect to change from one rendition of the story to the next. Item number two. In his 1985 interview with Jim Mars and his 1988 interview for The Men Who Killed Kennedy, but not the 1978 Goltz and 1982 Hurt accounts, Arnold described two separate confrontations with plainclothes agents, the first right off the railroad bridge and the second occurring when the agent followed him through the parking lot and insisted he leave the area behind the stockade fence completely. This brings us to another striking aspect of Arnold's account in The Men Who Killed Kennedy. The Goltz, Hurt, and Mars accounts are in complete agreement that Arnold encountered two separate policemen one who kicked Arnold and demanded that he get up, but did not brandish a weapon, and another who was crying and waving around a long gun, uh, specified as a shotgun in the Goltz account. For example, 
Arnold told Earl Goltz in 1978, The next thing I knew, someone was kicking my butt and telling me to get up, Arnold said. It was a policeman, and I told him to go jump in the river. And then this other guy, a policeman, comes up with a shotgun, and he was crying, and that thing was waving back and forth. I said, you can have everything I've got. Just point it someplace else. Likewise, Arnold specified to Jim Mars in 1985 that one of them, one of the two policemen, demanded his film. This is not the case in The Men Who Killed Kennedy. However, in that rendition, Arnold describes being accosted by a single police officer. Here is what he said in that interview. And what happened was that while I was laying on the ground, it seemed like a gentleman came from this particular direction, and I thought it was a police officer. But it didn't really matter much at that time because with him crying like he was and with him shaking when he had the weapon in his hand and literally what the man did was kick me and asked me if I was taking a picture, I told him that I was. And when I looked at the weapon, it was about that big around. And by the way, you can't see that, but on tape, he describes something that's probably about six inches in diameter. And I decided that I would let him have the film. I gave it to him, and then he went back off in this direction. Item number three, a question arises as to who removed the film from his camera. In The Men Who Killed Kennedy, Arnold states that he turned his film over to a man wearing a police uniform, but not, he specifies, the camera itself. I think I'd have given him almost anything except the camera, he said, because that was my mother's. Likewise, Arnold told Earl Goltz in 1978 that he himself took his film from the canister and threw it to the policeman. But in his 1985 account to Jim Mars, Arnold says that the police officer told me to give him my film. So I tossed him my camera and I said, you can have everything, just point the gun somewhere else. He opened it, pulled out the film, and then threw the camera back to me. Obviously, those are quite different stories in terms of how the film was removed from the camera. Item number four, Arnold's interview in The Men Who Killed Kennedy also adds two new details to his description of the individuals, or according to his earlier accounts, the second of two individuals who accosted him on the knoll. To Earl Goltz, Arnold had simply described this man as a policeman, but in the Henry Hurt interview, he was a second policeman. But by the time of Arnold's appearance in The Men Who Killed Kennedy, he seems to have developed some doubts about the man's occupation. I thought it was a police officer because he had a uniform of a police officer, but he didn't wear a hat and he had dirty hands. Let's stop there for a second and analyze that last sentence. He didn't wear a hat and he had dirty hands. This description appears in none of Arnold's earlier accounts, but it's reminiscent of two items of evidence with which he may have become familiar with by the time he was filmed in 1988. I'll get to that in a moment, but if you have been listening along for most of the previous episodes, well, you know what I am about to say already, so here it is. The first piece of evidence around this item consists of statements by Dallas Police Officer Joe Marshall Smith, who had described to the Warren Commission that he had encountered a man on the grassy knoll immediately after the shooting who displayed the identification of a Secret Service agent. To Earl Goltz in 1978, Smith said, I remember one thing. 
He kind of had dirty-looking hands or dirty fingernails, it looked like. He said essentially the same thing in his Warren Commission testimony. But Golds printed this in the same August 27, 1978, Dallas Morning News article that introduced Gordon Arnold to the world. Note that the man with dirty-looking hands was not a man in a police uniform. However, as in Arnold's story, but a man Smith believed to be a Secret Service agent. Again, that comes directly from his testimony under oath to the commission. Smith's description of this alleged agent also bears scant resemblance to Arnold's Secret Service or CIA agent behind the stockade fence. While Arnold's agent dressed in a light-colored suit and was wearing a sidearm, the man described by Smith in his testimony looked like an auto mechanic. He had on a sports shirt and sports pants, but he had dirty fingernails. It looked like, and hands that looked like, an auto mechanic's hands. It's hard to escape the impression that Arnold was simply mixing and matching elements from various stories he had heard or read. And there can be little doubt that Arnold had read Smith's story in 1978. The second piece of evidence that may have influenced Arnold's story is the image that we talked about in episode 41, related to the Mormon photograph. The image of Badge Man by Mack and White, and then the subsequent discovery of a less clearly defined image near Badge Man that they thought could be Gordon Arnold. Shortly thereafter, Mack reports he conducted three telephone interviews with Arnold, during one of which Mack says, I told him I had a photograph that may show him, but I didn't want him to see it until I was certain I had obtained the clearest possible version. Arnold's filmed interview for The Men Who Killed Kennedy took place in the summer of 1988, and according to Mack, it truly was the first time that he, that is Arnold, the first time he had seen any version of the Badge Man blow-ups. Let's stop here and think about that. Is it possible that, contrary to what Gary Mack believes, Arnold had seen or heard about the Badge Man image, which, by the way, was published by Mack in 1982, some six years prior to Arnold's filmed interview for The Men Who Killed Kennedy? And it was this development that inspired the new description of the police officer as one who was wearing a uniform of a police officer but didn't wear a hat. Another element of Arnold's evolving story suggests this may well have been the case. One more fact to conform to evolving circumstances. When shown a color-tinted version of a Mormon enlargement created by White and Mack, purportedly for the first time, one of Arnold's reactions was to ask someone off-camera, presumably director Nigel Turner, would this fella back here... Uh, the figure with the hard hat, be the railroad man I asked you about this morning? Because when I was walking the site, I had uh, never told anybody that I had, uh, when we were out there filming, it reminded me that there was a railroad worker just standing out there by the railroad tracks. So, in his interviews for The Men Who Killed Kennedy, Arnold has subtracted one of the two policemen from his earlier accounts, specified for the first time that the man or one of the men wearing a police uniform, was bareheaded and added a railroad worker who plays only a passive role in his story. As you know, this second person, now behind the fence, 
comports to what Mac and White had begun to say about finding another person in the Mormon picture wearing a hard hat. If these interviews were conducted, as both Nigel Turner and Gary Mack stated, before Gordon Arnold became aware of the hypothesized contents of the Mack, White, Mormon enlargements, it would indeed be remarkable that his 1988 account suddenly fits so perfectly with what Mack and White believe to be shown in Marianne Mormon's photograph. Can we be as certain as Turner and Mack that Arnold's recollections were untainted by any knowledge of what Mack and White had discovered, published, and publicized within the Kennedy assassination research community and done it years before? Let's face it. By the time you get to 1978, some 15 years after the assassination, these kinds of considerations had become standard procedure, so to speak. It was a fact of life that you just had to take the timing of these statements into consideration when evaluating supposedly newfound evidence that these so-called witnesses were proclaiming. Were they in fact influenced by stories and events that became publicly known in the post-assassination era? And in some cases, perhaps, had they even manufactured facts to ensure that they easily dovetailed with other facts that were already given by credible witnesses in sworn testimony, thereby becoming credible themselves. There were other odd things, too. It wasn't just those two categories, but we won't go into much of any of that. Well, remember when Arnold said that they could take the film, but he would be so worried about his mother's camera? Well, maybe again, that just seems odd to me. Here's another possibly odd thing. Following his encounter with the two officers, Arnold told Henry Hurt he went straight home. And according to the account he gave Jim Mars, Arnold ran straight back to his car and drove out of the parking lot unchallenged. He identified himself to no police officers or other authorities. And he never mentioned having spoken to any bystanders in Dealey Plaza. This seems somewhat odd to me. Don't you think he would have talked with others in the plaza at that moment? Perhaps had some idea that the president was shot, wanting to know more and commiserate with the rest of the crowd? Wouldn't he have found it crazy that the police or the Secret Service or the CIA or whoever it was took his film? Maybe he would want to talk with someone in authority about that. Look, everyone was in a state of shock. So the normal things people might do, well, that set of neurons might have been suspended that day. I get that. And I cringe when all the logical pundits after the fact want to predict exactly how people should have acted in that situation and didn't. But we are all human. And so I do get the practical side of his story. And if it was true, and if he really thought the police were the bad guys at that moment, well then, you might have a real reluctance to accost one of them and tell the story of your stolen film. I get that too. That part seems plausible and explainable to me, even though the whole of it all is still pretty far out and fantastic. It is worth pointing out as well that Abraham Zapruder filmed the entire assassination from just a few yards away from where Arnold's alleged location was, yet no one tried to seize his film. So if Arnold's film was seized, maybe the bad guys just couldn't get to everyone with a camera. Maybe there just wasn't enough bad guys that day on the scene to take everybody's film, and they had to choose which films to seize from whom. Or maybe no one was seizing film. 
Anyway, go off in a corner and discuss that one with Beverly Oliver. Okay. All right. I think it's late and I'm getting tired. But we still have to turn now to the second category of discrepancies. The photographic evidence taken in Dealey Plaza by so many people in the moments right after the shooting. Let's start with a recollection by Marilyn Sitzman, Abraham Zapruder's secretary, the woman that we know now from earlier episodes. Remember, Zapruder had vertigo, and as a result, Miss Sitzman ended up standing right behind him on top of the four-foot-tall pedestal as he was taking his film. She was up there because he had vertigo, so she climbed up as well in order to steady him and relieve his anxiety around that vertigo. Neither Zapruder nor Sitzman ever described anyone resembling Arnold in any of their statements, although Sitzman did recall two other people in that area. As she described to investigator Josiah Thompson, there was a colored couple there. I figured they were between 18 and 21, a boy and a girl, sitting on a bench, just almost, oh, parallel with me, on my right side, close to the fence. The bench was located almost precisely where Arnold would later describe himself as having stood. And they were eating their lunch because they had little lunch sacks and they were drinking Coke. The main reason I remember them is uh, after the last shot, I heard a crash of glass and I looked over there and the kids had thrown down their Coke bottles, just threw them down and just started running towards the back. Now, Thompson asked her, to get to this area between the stockade fence and the cement abutment or small mall, did you turn after the shot to look in this general area? Yes, she said. And did you see anyone in this area? No, she replied. Just the two colored people running back. When asked many years later by researcher Gus Russo about the possibility that someone had been shooting at the president from the Knoll area, Sitzman replied, That's absurd. I was only a few feet away, and I didn't hear or see anything suspicious. After the shooting, in fact, Sitzman immediately informed Sheriff's Deputy John Weissman that the shots had come from the book depository, not the knoll. Mr. and Mrs. Arthur John Chisholm had been watching the motorcade with their three-year-old child from the north side of Elm Street, near the Stemmons Freeway street sign. They both had the impression that the shots had come from behind them, in the area of the concrete pergola in between the grassy knoll and the Texas School Book Depository. Mrs. Chisholm turned to look behind her, but I couldn't see anything, she said. My wife and I began seeking cover, Mr. Chisholm said. They were captured in photographs that were featured in Life magazine, and seeking cover meant running directly past the corner of the concrete wall, behind which Gordon Arnold would later claim to have had his upsetting confrontation. Neither of the Chisholms ever reported anything unusual occurring there. Cecil Stoughton was an official White House photographer, and he was in the second press car. Stoughton's now-famous photograph depicts Tom Craven and Tom Atkins hovering over the Newmans with their cameras pointed right at the family as they lay on the ground seconds after the fatal shots. Behind them, captured in clear, crisp focus by Stoughton's lens, is the concrete wall behind which Gordon Arnold would claim to have had his unsettling encounter. In Stoughton's photograph, there is very obviously no one standing behind the concrete wall or anywhere near it. Granted, that was not simultaneous to the shots, and anyone shooting would not have hung out. But Arnold would likely have still been there, so why is he absent from the picture? 
There were other photos, too, that were taken of the knoll right after the shots. Photos that don't seem to show Arnold or a figure that even looks like him in the photos. The Bond photographs are such a group. Officer Haygood's dash to the underpass. Remember, he was one of the motorcycle policemen that we met in a previous episode. Well, that dash was captured in the background of several photographs, including Wilma Bond's second photograph of the knoll and another picture snapped by bystander Phil Willis. We are familiar with the Willis photographs, too. Also, clearly visible in both images is the corner of the concrete wall. No one can be seen behind it. At the time of those pictures, approximately 30 seconds had passed since the shots were fired. In the moments that followed, Wilma Bond snapped three more exposures that show the corner of the concrete wall. By the last of these, a handful of spectators can be seen beginning to follow Officer Haygood up the knoll. But no sign of Arnold. Several of Wilma Bond's photographs show the first press bus rolling down Elm Street, giving it essentially a timestamp that is right after the shots were fired. On that bus, Fort Worth star telegram photographer Harry Cablock snapped three pictures through a window in the bus. His second image captures very clearly the entire length of the concrete wall. No one can be seen behind it. Cablock's photo also captures a man in a suit. That's in the upper left-hand portion of the picture. And that person might be Dallas Morning News photographer Kent Biffle, a passenger in the car behind the press bus. Nobody knew what was happening at that point, Biffle would later recall, but believing the shots came from the Knoll area, Biffle headed in that direction. Some teenagers followed, he said. One of them darted ahead and hit the fence before I did. I remember thinking, this nutty kid is going to get his head blown off and he's not even getting paid for it. He just vaulted over that fence, Biffle said, recalling how he quickly followed suit. He shamed me into doing it. Puffing, I followed him. They never did find an assassin, however, nor did Biffle see anything unusual on the way up the knoll or on the way back. As the shots ended, one of the press cars in the parade was approaching Elm Street and the Texas School Book Depository. We know this car from a previous episode. It contained KRLD cameraman James Underwood, WBAP cameraman James Darnell, and Dallas Morning News photographer Thomas Dillard. And these men jumped from the vehicle and began photographing the events unfolding around them. As the car approached the triple underpass, the two remaining passengers, Dallas Times Herald photographer Robert Jackson and WFAA cameraman Malcolm Couch, told the driver to stop, and both ran back to the Knoll area. The films of Underwood, Darnell, and Couch all captured lasting images of the Knoll, but no corroboration for Gordon Arnold's story. Bystander Jay Skaggs, who had run towards Elm Street after the shooting, snapped a photograph of the knoll from a position close to that of Wilma Bond. By this time, a number of people had begun to walk towards the railroad overpass, but no one can be seen near the corner of the wall. According to Skaggs, approximately one minute had passed since the shots were heard. All I can say now is, have you heard enough? Yet, if Gordon Arnold's story is true, no one took notice of a soldier being robbed at gunpoint in broad daylight by two police officers, one of whom was crying, and none of the numerous photographers present captured Arnold or his confrontation with the police officers on film. But Gordon Arnold claimed that he was there, 
And not only was he there, but there were plenty of shots flying overhead. The young soldier felt the first shot, as he would describe the experience, only inches over his left shoulder. So close, he told Henry Hurt in 1982, that when the shots began, I thought they were shooting at me. And as he stated even more dramatically in The Men Who Killed Kennedy, when a bullet goes past your ear and your eardrum feels like it's coming out the other side of your head, it's close. That's why I thought I was shot. Thought he was shot? Oh my. Well, that's enough. I've heard enough and said enough. It's now up to you as a juror to determine what is credible evidence and what is not, what to keep and what to throw out with the bathwater. I'm hungry again. Time for a sandwich. Thank you for listening to episode 42 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. 